Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show as is up versus down, and always we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on Main Streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, but you likely don't know his full and remarkable story. People always say, how ironic, you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here? Now I'm in a worst part of Minneapolis in, in the one guy's apartment, in Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. <laughs> and uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And they, before he left, though, he goes, you made a promise to us. Because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise them this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and, they, and help everyone, you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail, I'd read the Bible. About the only time I would, you know. And so I'm telling these guys, well, they would quit that day, the next day. Like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, well, what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense. Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite. Yeah, this is really bad. Give me another line, you know. And and they would they would listen. But all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing and the one guy kicks the other guy, Joe, out of his own apartment and he sits there in a the chair next to me, says, how much you have left? And I had, I don't know, enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and, I, and now I, I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days. And it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. I'm the only white guy down there. I'm, and they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And, and I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? And all, my buddy, Joe, that he just, he goes, yeah, he goes, Mike didn't realize we told him, you know, if a, if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache, you know. <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day, and he, because he works for, now he's a Christian, he works for my company. And he, so anyway, I get back to the room, and I defeat it, and I get in there, and, and uh, he's sitting in the chair, and he says, uh, how'd that work out for you? And I said, I was so mad, and I said, you know, it was like 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And he goes, he goes, give me your phone. He says, you're gonna take, you're gonna take this picture. You told us you're gonna write a book. You're gonna need this for your book. It's like, think of someone on 14 days in a mugshot or whatever, but it times that by five, you know. 
Mike believes that his drug addiction was all because of his parents' divorce. 100%, 100%. Everything in childhood, everything in childhood, trauma, everything affects it, manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce, but a divorce, a fatherlessness, it affects everybody. This was not known back then. I mean, it was very rare, you know. My mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was uh, to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to, you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in the movie theater. And the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs, and me and my buddy that worked there were gonna moon the crowd. And we stand up there, we're 160 feet off the ground, and I'm afraid of heights, we hang onto the screen, and now I couldn't get back up, and I'm gonna fall to my death, and my, and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off, so he's helping me trying to get back up, and he gets me back up, and I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom, and they're going, and this is the 1970s, they're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there, he goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there, don't do that again and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, he goes, is that part of the movie, you know? And uh, I did a lot of different things like that. And I know a lot of it was, uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement, even though I, even though I get myself into trouble, it was exciting and it was challenging getting out of trouble, you know? <laughs> Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like, that was the thing to do, go to college. And I had, I, I didn't go to class. I went to class twice. I was working two jobs. My roommate's going, uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get C's at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis. And as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse. I'm out of here. The you know, world's coming to an end, or whatever. I'm, I'm going to go have fun. Why is God? You know, I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going. It's a repeat of high school. These things in my whole thought process. Why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, or whatever you want to be? And that bothered me. I'm not going to sit here and waste my time. That's the way I thought. So he put his attention elsewhere. Working at the grocery store, I got heavy into illegal sports betting. And I uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports and I ended up owing them a lot of money and they came to my trailer and left a note. He said, if you don't pay by tonight, things are gonna get very physical. That night I went to work at the grocery store and I told my manager, I said, Lenny, I said, if." If anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, looks like he's, I say, we say Mike telephone line three. We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes. And I said, and I hear Mike telephone line three and out the back door I went and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series, this time Mike Lindell. And we return at this point. He's dropped out of college. He's working at a grocery store and for the owner's son, who was his manager. I had been uh, fired. It was union. I'd been fired I don't know how many times the union got my job back or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules. And he goes, if you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and make your own rules. And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then. And I've, I've changed a lot of that now to my own company yeah. where to make things better. And he, he said the, the final the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was, I was on five different schedules. And one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> And uh, anyway, the next day I come in and he's working to me. He says, you've been suspended indefinitely. And I said, I don't, what does that mean? I, I like, like, you know, I didn't realize that you're done, you know. I didn't know what the words meant. And uh, so I said, yeah, we'll see about this. So I went to his dad and he, say, he looked at me. He says, Mike, I'm not, I'm not getting behind you this time. He says, you're destined for bigger things. He says, you're going to look back someday and see this was meant to be. And he says, you can't be a lifer here, even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And uh, I'll never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, while wow, that had to happen, or I might still have been there for years later, you know. But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life. My fifth year reunion with my class, everyone's now is out of the college. They get these amazing jobs. They've started families, or they've kept with the same company since high school. In my mind, they were way ahead of me. And it was very, it was bothering me inside. And then it was just uh, going, wow, everybody's ahead of me. And I'm doing stuff to show off. And I'm, you know, I got into, you know, I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card counter. But I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just threw it at the class. So I'm, I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and my car accidents and my, you know, card counter, things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me, you know, so I'm blowing their minds. And so we don't get on the topic of, uh, yeah, how you doing for work? How you doing? Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mike? How many kids you got? How many, know, how's your family? You know, I'm just completely putting up this wall, you know, for these other things. And so they're all thinking I'm nuts basically. But it was a very, it was, that starting there was a very much a driver, and it was like I, there was a lot of. Now it started to be shame, you know. I'm going, you know, this is, this is not who I can be. And then I prayed. I said, you know, God, all I want is to meet the right woman and have, you know, kids and and uh, you know, be the the white picket fence, so to speak. And then God brought that all to me and handed it to me on a silver platter. Until Mike jeopardized his answered prayer. By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction, even though it's hard to, for the addiction to, to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the, the cocaine and then, the, and then crack. The kids didn't know, okay? Even like neighbors, let's give our kids, you know, send our kids over there because we were the fun, you know, this is back in the, you know, when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast when the cocaine turned into crack. And, and the kids, 
My daughter at that time, when we, we got right when it all kind of blew up, uh, she says, we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. It's a swear word. What do you mean? What? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so that don't sound great. But I lost it all. You know, I eventually lost it all. And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running my pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at. This teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in today's money for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because, you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean, I mean, how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life, I'm trying different pillows and I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning with headache, neck ache. But most of these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in, in 2004, I had a very clear dream of the name, my pillow, and I wrote my pillow all over the house and, and connecting the Y and the P and, and you know, these logos and I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know, um, but I go, well, where's my pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything and it was because of my pillow got big, everybody took up the my's, but my daughter came upstairs and there was, she looked and there were pieces of paper written all over and Lizzie says, uh, she gets a glass of water, she, I don't know, she's 11 years old maybe, and she said, what are you doing, Dad? And I go, I go, I'm gonna invent this pillow. And I, and I realized I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's gonna be made of or what it's gonna do. It's gonna be the best thing ever, I've seen it, and, and this is gonna be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper, she goes, that's really random, Dad, and she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad going to get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be, it'll be over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my I'd little bar and restaurant. So my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there. My one son, Darren, and I, who's now managing 1,100 or 1,200 employees of the manufacturing. That's what he does now. But he's like nine or 10 years old and every day we'd get home from school and we'd try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get to work and finally we get it and it worked. Once we had the pillows all made, we had mortgaged our house, everything, and we had no money left but we had like 300 pillows and I went into the first pillow, I walked into a, it was a bed, bath and beyond, I'll just say the name, in Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there, I said, I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is going to change, you know, change, you're going to sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where, where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know? And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to your buyer. And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody, it was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk, and I had a little sign, a stencil, where I put on family-owned and operate. I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor recommended. And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, 
I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did, we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And, but one guy, he came up and he said, hey, you have a, do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I said, here, and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now kiosk was almost, you know, a complete failure, basically. I borrowed money from my ex-bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex-bookie, he said, if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean, that, I mean that's, uh, you know, he cared. <laughs> so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I gave my phone number to. And I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And, he, and I'm excited hearing his, you know, not worrying about where I am at, that this is, I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going, I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know? And I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money. And, and uh, so of course I had to borrow money to get into there. But then um, I go into that Home and Garden Show. But what I did is I got behind that booth. I could sell. And once I got behind her, it was, it was like, wow. And as I'm seeing people, they would literally come back the next day. So many people after that first day go, this is a miracle. And the same thing the guy said. Now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just, it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people. And I sold out that four days, sold out. I was, and I'm going, wow, I can, this is where I'm going to be. I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down. So I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair. We blew it out of the park. We're still there. And as they say, the rest is history. But that's a tad bit blasé for this story. There were more trials to come. And the story of Mike Lindell, an American Dreamer story, as good as any we've done. Where will you hear the rest of the story here on Our American Stories? Turn to the life story of my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. I had this mask on, and probably from when from the divorce from childhood. I always had to have. That's when I got a hold of cocaine. It was so easy. I, everything I did, I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from you know from different things that have happened. It's an unworthiness, and now when I quit all my drugs and everything. That was, it's been quite a journey to where now, I mean, if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time, it was 2000. 
five or six, and this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, uh, um, hey, this uh, host he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you, I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, and she goes, no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on drugs? You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the, I've never been so nervous. I was just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, well, if you'd have told me then, oh, you, you don't need all this and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was, home. Interesting with the home shows. Um, you know, I, I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up. They had a reason for me to talk to them. Now, if I left behind the booth, I didn't have to have drugs. That was the only, it was like a phenomenon. Now, if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there, I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to, because I wouldn't want to talk to them. You follow me? I wouldn't want to talk to them. So it'd be, when I was behind that, behind that table, talking about my pillow, I was in a, it was like a, you know, this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously if I had cocaine, it would be, it would be you know, the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with, with the cocaine or without, only in one spot behind that booth. Once I left that booth, I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk, if I'm in the, I'm, and I have to talk to you and you're the next booth over and we're gonna talk about the weather, it's not happening. I'm clamming up, I'm avoiding, I'm going, hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect where I probably have the social skills of a 12-year-old. The home shows were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow, not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he was a positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I, would, I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't, I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I've worked on. You know, I can't accept if we were gonna, if we were gonna go to lunch, guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way, you know, I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's able to accept is also uh, just as good as blessing someone. But I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just helped people forever and never got, I wasn't thinking like, okay, I'm gonna make millions of dollars. My thought was always, I'm gonna help millions of people. There's a difference. But to reach his fullest potential in helping people, there was just one person that he had to help first. 
himself. It was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis, of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ. An interesting thing happened a week after that um, little intervention. I'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call. Now, remember, I, we talked about that little public access station. That's on, and that lady was a nice Christian lady. She would air it just every now and then, you know. And I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows then, you know. So it was helping me out. And, and uh, well, that night, it's about 9.30 at night, and the phone rings. And I answer, and, and I'm up doing, you know, of course, I'm still up for probably two, three days. And she says, you know, I, I'm are you the guy i seen on Channel 6. And uh, I said, yeah. She says... Well, she says, God, God, I prayed and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye. And I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by and another lady calls up. And this never had happened, okay? I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, are you the guy seen on Channel 6 that invented this pillow? And I said, yeah, she goes, well, I haven't bought one, and, and, but she said, um, I was going to call and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to, the, to God. And I'm going, okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we prayed, and I talked to her. I had nothing. You know, I'm doing lines of cocaine. I wanted someone to talk to anyway, you know. And um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up, same night. And he calls up, and he answers, and he goes, I want to get you the guy on TV. And he was mad. And I go, yeah. He goes, I goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God. And he slams the phone down, very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and, um, and I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And, and uh, she ended up buying a pillow though too, <laughs> but, but we, so we prayed. So that day I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, he chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling. And, this, and she said, this window's going to close and God's going to choose someone else. And you're, and, but then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom because I've survived. You know, addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, addictions are so, there's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money, to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so, it's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're gonna get what they want. And when we come back, we're gonna hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I, I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought I'm going to help millions of people. And That's a big difference, he said, and it is. 
And of course, we've heard that from so many of our American dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment, Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. Now let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamer series, Mike Lendell's story, the founder of MyPillow. It would get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984. But he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going, well, as long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, is it boring? And that was a big question on addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions, it's, it's because you're bored. It's not, you're hiding pain. You're hiding pain and you're doing it, you know, you're all that, whatever you're doing on the, for the high, it's just masking the pain. So I was very concerned about, is it boring? Then he left, that was in December of 08. Now, on January 16, 2009, I sat there and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And, and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is going to help so many people because this is going to be, God's going to show the best comeback or the best with God all things are possible ever this story this story is going to be an amazing story I actually thought that the day I quit and so I prayed I said God I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions I don't ever want to feel them that you know the desire free me from the desire and uh, I said then I'm all yours I'll do this platform that was my thing so I'll do this you know whatever you want me to do so I wake up in the morning and it's gone it was a piece it was like wow I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's gonna take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people. 
And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end, but I nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode. When Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't, and he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, amazing. In my head, I'm going, this is going to be the biggest ever. I'm telling my friends and family. Mike says that in a dream, there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success that came to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight. A wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go. And someone introduced him to a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to be in TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows. You know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out, we didn't even have anything. So, divine appointment, I met this other guy, so he's gonna do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was gonna do it because he had seen so much passion, this guy says, you need to do it. Then all of a sudden they had wrote this script and I went to read it, they had this big professional guy had come in and he's sitting there and he's listening to me read off this script and then her and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible, okay, being me, you know. This is, it's, they didn't know what to do, so they, they decided they would go with no teleprompter. That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial. It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good. <laughs> what about this one? This one here is Ruined America. Um, oh my God. So we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where I come, my comfort zone, and I just went naturally or whatever. Now on October 7, 2011, I'm living in my sister's basement, and, and this aired at three in the morning, and all of a sudden this half-hour infomercial comes on, and I'm going, wow. I'm watching myself, you know, usually I would get so uncomfortable, but I'm going, I hadn't seen it yet. I had not seen it, I had not, I couldn't watch it, so this is the first time I watched it. And it was surreal. And it wasn't like, ooh, I'm on TV. It was like, wow, this is like divine. Wherever you set that, you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support, yep. okay? You can turn this any way you want. You can make little balloon animals out if you want. Okay, it's going to hold. It takes six pounds of pressure to hold that. It was just all natural. That It was like, it was real. It was what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a cookie cutter, you know, infomercial and we exploded. We went from five employees to 500 in 40 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We were working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center because I, I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, yeah, what's in that pillow? The guy goes, I don't know, Google it. I fired him on the spot. I was so upset. and. And we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in and we took phones through the night. 
And I look back now and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we, we were making them, hiring people, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And then I, and then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things, I just wanted to make pillows, you know? And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months. But the experts continued to tell him that his way was stupid. They're going, did you make this ad? This is this is terrible. Did you write this yourself? We can do so much better, blah, blah, blah. And uh, now it's the number one ad in history. I look it up. I'll put it up against any ad ever. Mike's ad-libbed infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over 75,000 MyPillow products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. you got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, during that time, and I, I had fell away from God. I didn't, uh, I mean, I was like, when I took in all that money, I'm going, wow, this is, you know, I kind of kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me, and everything started to just dry up, okay? And in the summer of 14, I met Kendra. And I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have. It was, it was like this relationship with Jesus. And I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. I'm going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country where I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful. Why did the relationship finally come on this particular day. Operation Restored Warrior is actually for veterans. You go there, it's a five-day thing where you're, uh, you give your life to Jesus. And, you know, I was invited, like, you know, I'm not a veteran, and I'm going, why? But they all prayed, and we're going to invite, we want, you know, God told them that we want Mike Lindell to come to this. And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart, and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with him instead of just, you know, okay, I'm going to go to church and believe in God. And, you know, before all those times now I look back, all these chapters and all these things of my life, for me, it took all these things because I'm going, this doesn't happen unless it's of God. That the troubled son of divorced parents, the crack addict, the twice divorced father, the near bankruptcies, all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason. That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith 
before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking. This could have only happened for one reason and by one man. God's blessed me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell. And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamers series. This may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. stories we tell all kinds of stories here but some of our favorite ones are about work because we spend so much time working in america we're workers how folks choose jobs what they do in those jobs and what they learn along the way and by the way when you're not in work or work that meets the bills boy that's tough that's happening a lot in this country too i think in in some parts it's what the election was about Today, we're talking to photographer and writer Chris Arnotti, who has spent two years driving some 100,000 miles across the country, spending time with folks that too many have simply forgotten. Chris says, quote, I post people's stories as they tell them to me. I am not a journalist. I don't try to verify. I just listen. And he added, large parts of the U.S. have become completely isolated socially and economically. Kids are growing up in towns where 6 or 7 or 11, they are doomed to be viewed as second class. They feel unvalued. They feel stuck. They are mocked. And there is nothing they feel they can do about it. And Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. You know, what brought you to do something like this, Chris? Was it a lark? Was it a curiosity? Or was it boredom? Um, it was primarily the middle. Um, I, uh, I was, uh, I, I was uh, um, at the time prior to going across America, driving around. I was um, focused primarily on just on addiction, on the story of addiction, and um, in, in, in my case, it was in the, in the South Bronx in Hunts Point. I had spent three years with a community of homeless addicts, uh, documenting them, and I, it, it 
was a sense that what I was seeing in the South Bronx, the frustration, the, the, the people turning to drugs um, who um, were, 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 was not just limited to the South Bronx. And so I wanted to see if it was true. Um, what I saw in the South Bronx was true elsewhere. And, and, and you know, so I, I wanted to see in other communities. So I started going to places in the United States um, that you know had had problems with addiction that that were that were were experiencing a, a, a increase in 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 addiction um, and drugs and um, and that kind of became a more of a project on just poverty and, and and isolation and then that became more of a project on just going into any community that I felt might not be getting the attention um, the medium from the media that I thought it, it deserved. And J.D. Vance covers this, I believe, deeply and beautifully in Hillbilly Elegy. It's a terrific book, by the way, if you haven't read it. I think you'll, you'll, you'll understand and empathize with what he grew, grew up in and lived through. And in large measure, he writes quite a bit about those addictions and drugs, too, because in the end, those things tend to happen because of either loneliness, emptiness, or a lack of hope. Uh, it's rarely anything good that happens as a result of that, uh, too. Chris, you've covered so much in your years on the road that we can't possibly get to everything in one interview. Let's tackle one part at a time. You saw a lot of people who have been beaten down for so long that they're barely hanging on. In the midst of that, you say, there are two great and underappreciated institutions. Uh, one of them, you note, is small churches. Talk about what you saw in your travels. Right. Um, there's kind of three or four places I go in every town I go to, and, and two of those are um, the McDonald's, um, and, one, and the other is the uh, uh, churches, mostly evangelical churches. Um, they're places that, you know, I, I tend to go to places that, as any, anybody who does who spends a lot of time on the road, you, know, I think you go to places that, that are welcoming, welcoming to you. And um, I myself am not particularly religious, um, but... You know, for for the work I do and and focusing on people who 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 have suffered, perhaps um, I found community churches as places that offered a lot of hope to those people, as well as also were welcoming to them. And so I found myself, you know, going going into churches to to both meet to meet these people um, and to get a better sense of what they were going through, but also I found myself drawn to the services. Um, for the community I found in them, um, it wasn't just about the you know it wasn't just about being a reporter looking for sources it was i, I you know the, the community for me um and the strength of the community i found in these churches was uh was was comforting um for, for, for me as well well you you wrote at one point any church that has a sign that says we welcome everybody that's where i go and that's not a bad place to start is it um not in my mind um and that's true i i don't i don't I don't uh, discriminate based on um, denomination or what part of town they're in, what you know, what what the, what the race of the congregation primarily is. I, I find that on a Wednesday night uh, at seven o'clock Bible service, or a <laughs> or Sunday seven thirty, or a Sunday morning, you know, there's always um, I, I can just kind of walk in and people people will accept me, and I'll learn a lot, um, and I'll see a lot, and uh, I'll see a, a great warmth. Um, but also um, more than that. Um, you know, a place where people can find some sense of, um, you know, I, I think in, in many ways, in my, my, my mind, for many communities and for many people, the only institution that, that hasn't failed them in their mind is the church. It's so true. And I think that if you were to poll Americans uh, on these matters, that the church and the military probably are the are two institutions that still remain fairly high. 
Um, but particularly those who have families in the military. By the way, how military vets are treated after they get out of the military, my goodness, that we could do, we could write a book on that. Um, but while in service, um, still fairly high estimation. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Chris Arnotti. And, and Chris did something unique and exceptional. And he decided to go around the country, started at Hunts Point. By the way, one of the great food markets in the world at Hunts Point. I grew up not far from Hunts Point. Uh, but he was writing about and interested in drug addiction. And he was wondering what that looked like around the country. And the next thing you know, he's just driving around the country, logging some 100,000 miles, taking pictures and posting stories. And this is Our American Stories. We're interested in those kind of stories here. More with Chris after these messages. Our American stories, and we continue our conversation with Chris Arnotti. And by the way, Chris's Twitter handle is at Chris underscore Arnotti, and that's A R N A D E. And reach out to him. We were talking about a couple of the first places that Chris goes to when he enters a new town, a new place. And by the way, Chris, I spent uh, almost two years on the road on blue highways. And doing pretty much that. I didn't take pictures or anything. I just, I wanted to meet my, my countrymen. And it was just one of the great joys of my life to be on the road, work a little bit, make some money, and then live for three months off that money, and then do it and do it. And I spent almost two years doing that. And I'll, I'll never forget it. And uh, I, wish I, did, I wish I did take more pictures. I didn't. But those churches, let's get back into those churches. Uh, what, what did you see there as it related to... You talked a little about the hope. You said you weren't a religious person. But what did you see there that others might not see? And I think the media certainly doesn't see when they go. I don't even think they see the towns. I don't think they'd walk into the churches, Chris. Um, I saw, I think the thing that, that surprised me the most, um, um, or what, what, what appeals to me the most, is the community. There's a strong sense of community. This is a real, you know, I, I, I think back to a town just recently I was in, um, in Dubuque, um, I was at a small evangelical church in Dubuque, Iowa, and um, like every like every service, there was a there's a prayer time offered. Um, uh, small, you know, people asked who to pray for, um, and and one person asked them to pray. You know, uh, turn into discussion about which mechanic to use <laughs> because you know they didn't have a lot of money, and they had originally said, you know, I just want to say I'm I'm happy that my tr- my, my car got fixed for you know X amount, and I can't. I can't spend that much amount. And then it turned into like a three-minute conversation about which mechanic to use and who's the best mechanic, who they can trust. And, you know, it just shows that (laughs) it's as much about coming together and talking about some of the problems of life and talking about how to deal with them and people helping each other. It's about helping each other. 
um, and you know, and and providing support beyond just the, the spiritual support, which which is there, but also the the, the actual physical support. What can, you know, and I think that 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 strength of the community and the ability to welcome people into it is, I think, missed a lot in the media. I do, and I think that you know, as people think about economics and they think about religion, and they have all these different categories they write about in silos, Chris. I think people forget about that the church, synagogues, mosques as social capital. I mean, we always talk about capital, capital, money. But social capital may be just as important. In some ways, it might be more important. Uh, talk about that as, as, as you traveled around the churches. Right. I, I think a lot of what I feel is I think we tend to, um, I, I put we, we, me in, in that category as people, what I call on the front row kids, people who, who have done very well in life and and tend to you know have high high powered educations and tend to view the world through that framework we tend to think of things we tend to forget that not everything's just about economics or money there there are other ways people find meaning in other ways people want meaning in other ways people need meaning they need it through things such as faith they need it through um community they need it through um and they want it. They they value those things more than they might value their job. I mean, of course, having a good job is important, but you know, having friends for life, being there for your family, being there for your congregation, being there for your community is is often what people value more than than you know being there for your boss. Indeed, and uh, you so churches were one stop, and then. McDonald's. My, mine was Walmart. Yours is McDonald's, but I found uh, I found the same. The difference being, and, and now that I'm looking at your choice, it's ingenious. You really can't sit anywhere in Walmart and just commiserate um, and talk, um, but you can at McDonald's. Talk about why you picked McDonald's first, and second, what you learned there sitting in McDonald's for 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 a while and across the country. Yeah, I didn't expect to, to spend or become such a promoter of McDonald's as valuable, but. You know, when you're on the road and you're talking to people who who don't have a lot, um, people who don't have a lot, McDonald's welcomes you. It's another place where I say they don't judge you. You can come in. You can you know, just from the very small logistics, you can come in, use Wi-Fi, plug your phone in, sit there for half an hour, use the bathroom, um, get cheap food, um, and just take a rest from kind of the, the stresses of going on outside and. And you can do it, and people will treat you as an equal in many ways. It's you do it, and all of a sudden there's a community there of people doing it, and they're helping each other. And so, I was there because I'm, I was helping. I became close to a lot of people who have very little, and we spent a lot of time in McDonald's just hanging out, talking. And uh, I started noticing that, and especially in the mornings. There are groups of people who get together every morning, morning coffee groups. Now, some of them call themselves things. Uh, they call them the Romeo Club, retired old men eating out. Uh, that's what they call themselves in Agatha, Louisiana. Um, and that's true of every McDonald's. And I started realizing that's true of every McDonald's I went in. There is a morning group of people who just hang out in the morning, get coffee, um, and, and talk and gossip. And it, it is in many ways a community center now in smaller towns. And by the way, you write, McDonald's is non-judgmental. If you have nowhere to go all day, they'll let you stay, nurse your coffee, read your paper. There's a friendship that develops between the people who work there and the people who go there. And talk about that. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a strong 
again, you know, I, I keep going going back to community. There's a strong community that develops in McDonald's um, between the workers, between the, the regulars, and there are regulars between each of the regulars. Um, and you know, it's just it's it's. I always say that it's you know everybody says every McDonald's is the same, but if you blindfold me and put drop me into a McDonald's, and I couldn't look outside, I could tell you what city I am by the people there. They very much reflect the community that they're in. Um, so a McDonald's in Prestonburg, Kentucky, is very different than a McDonald's, and you know, in, in Northside uh, 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 Milwaukee, um, they take on the character of the neighborhood because they take on the care because they take on the character of the people who are in that neighborhood. Yep. Um, and so, you know, you said Walmart's. So I, I could write the same thing about Walmart's. So I find I spend a lot of time in Walmart plazas, <laughs> um, you know, because I'm. I'm I'm driving in a beat up car and I'm I'm living pretty cheaply um on the road and Walmart plazas they don't have that meeting place although sometimes the worker table outside becomes that meeting place um uh, or community place they don't have the, the, as much community there as they, as the Walmarts but it's close right it is and you said back row and front row uh, people and I thought that was fascinating dig dig uh, down a little bit more on that Chris, because I think Charles Murray, I don't know, you know look, I think there's, you know, everybody has different political orientations in this great country, but I think you and Charles Murray, you may have different answers, but in his book Coming Apart, I think he was writing about back row and front row people when he was writing about Fishtown, this town with struggling blue-collar workers and sort of the working class and poor working poor, and this upper-class town where everybody got fancy degrees and the economy was doing great for them, but it wasn't doing so great for these other folks. Right. I think the the big we, there are many divides in this country. There's a racial divide. There is a there is economic divide. There, but I, I think the bigger divi- the divide that 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 is also there is between education, between what I call the front row and the back row. And I and I'm a front row kid. I call myself you know, there are the people you know. I, I jokingly, you know, the negative. There, there's positives to being a front row kid. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a there's a lot of people who who, who you know come out of the, these small towns and get an education, go to Harvard. Um, get a PhD and, and do wonderful things, but there's communities that are defined by that kind of quality. You know, you have you have a large school in your community, and you have a large um, uh, employer who hires a lot of PhDs and a lot of people with um, you know, high degrees. And those places are very different than communities that. You know, people I call are filled mostly with back row kids, kids who 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 don't. If they do have postgraduate education, post high school, it's it's cobbled together from community colleges and smaller state schools, and and you know, in these places, in these towns, people tend to stay there. Um, they don't leave. They they tend to stay for, and they value the community. They yep. value the family. And there's just two very way different ways of looking at. At what you value um, primarily, you know. I say front row kids value their career over everything else. They they'll move for their career, um, and they move often for their career, and so that's their community, their their their, their particular job. Yep. Um, and it's just it's different. I I don't favor one. They're just different ways of looking yes. at things, and I think that divide to me is the one that really resonates um, for me is what I see across this country as really kind of determining where you fall on the political spectrum or where you fall in terms of how you see things. Yep, I think that's well put. Back row and front row people. Chris Arnotti doing great work. We'd love to have you back and tell some more stories about the people you've met in your 100,000 plus miles around the country. 
taking pictures and telling stories with folks struggling in this great country. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And one of the things we love to talk about on the show while we're preparing for the show, well, almost all the time, is food. While we're eating, we're actually talking about where we're going to eat next. That's how bad it is here at Our American Stories. And this story is about sandwiches and the law and class action lawsuits. Here's Jesse. I like Eating sandwiches, eating sandwiches for lunch and dinner. Ah, yeah, sandwiches. Who doesn't love eating a sandwich? I'm probably eating one right now, and you wouldn't even know it. Sandwiches, like Mom used to make. Sanctuary from an insane world. The one place you can go to get away from the nightmarish current events, bad weather, (laughs) awful things happening in the news. Turn now to that scandal at Subway. You may have heard about this one. It turns out some of their famous foot-long sandwiches have been coming in a bit short. Oh, God. I think size matters. To the courtroom, a new proposed class action lawsuit is now accusing Subway of deceptive advertising. Oh, no! no. God! If they're following the baking procedures, they should get this 12 inches out of the oven every single time. No! Sandwiches, too! Is anything sacred? But joining us to give the details of this cold-cut case is Ted Frank. Thanks for having me. He's senior attorney with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Explain to us the details, if you wouldn't mind. The underlying story was there was this teenager in Australia who bought a sandwich. Uh, He bought a foot long, and he had the, the clever idea of, well, what happens if I measure it? And his particular foot long sandwich was 11 inches or so. Uh, and he took a picture of it, and he put it on Facebook, and it went viral. Sandwich. Uh, it went even more viral because whoever the social media manager was of the uh, Australian affiliates of Subway, uh, they didn't handle it very well. They said, oh, well, here we have the metric system, so when we say foot long, it's just a, just, just a puffery. It's not really a description of how long the sandwich is, and that, of course got people really angry. How angry did they get? Uh, There's now global worldwide controversy over how long Subway footlong sandwiches are. Uh, And and Subway realizes that they've stepped in it. So they they, they come forward and they say, look, uh, we want everybody to have a footlong sandwich if they've ordered a footlong sandwich and we're going to take all these additional steps uh, in terms of quality control and inspections of our franchisees and make sure that if you if you if you've ordered a footlong sandwich you're getting a footlong sandwich and if you get a piece of bread that's not a footlong uh tell the tell the manager and they'll they'll give you a new sandwich uh so subway you know the the, the market works 
Jeez, we hardly made a dent to that 10-foot hoagie. Oh, give it a good hope. Subway had whatever problem it had. Uh, people got upset, and, and Subway responded to the market pressure and said, you, you want your, 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 your sandwiches to be a foot long? We're, we're going to make sure that they're a, f- a foot long. You've been eating that thing for a week. I think the mayonnaise is starting to turn. Two more feet, and I can fit it in the fridge. But our story can't just end here, can it? Everybody's happy, right? Not so fast. By this time, the lawyers had come in. Uh, and without doing any real investigation other than seeing the news stories, they, they grabbed a plaintiff and they said, we're bringing a class action on behalf of everybody in America who uh, did not have a foot-long sandwich. And they presumably thought that they were going to get rich off of this. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd like to be alone with the sandwich for a moment. They hadn't really investigated whether uh, the class members, their clients, actually had any injury. And it, it turns out that that Subway distributes lumps of dough uh, to its franchisees. And, and the lumps of dough are of uniform size, and the franchisees are supposed to stretch them out and bake them. And, and sometimes they're careful about baking them, and they're, 11, and, and they're 12 and a half inches, and sometimes they're less careful, and, and they don't rise all the way, and, and it's 11 and a half inches. But it's the same amount of bread. Uh, nobody's getting shortchanged. It's just the shape of the bread that's different. <laughs> that's what she said. The lawyers still wanted their money. But there was just one little problem. Nobody really had an injury. Uh, and the, even the lawyers recognized, wow, this, this suit isn't getting anywhere. Uh, but they still wanted to get paid. So they agreed to a settlement and the settlement was Subway agrees to do what they've already announced that they're going to do, which is to have a quality control program to make sure all the bread is a foot long. And, and the lawyers will get a half million dollars for uh, making Subway agree to what they've already agreed to do. Uh, and we're going to call that a class action settlement. So let's just recap for a second here. Someone complains to Subway that their $5 foot long is in fact a little short at 11.5 inches. Subway, being the upstanding sandwich slingers that they are, correct the issue from the top down with no questions asked. Then some lawyer caught wind of the situation and turned it into a good old-fashioned shakedown in the form of a class-action lawsuit to the tune of $500,000. So what did the Competitive Enterprise Institute do about it? We came in and we objected. Uh, and at the district court level in in the Western District of Wisconsin, uh, the, the federal judge there, still sort of rubber stamped the settlement, rubber stamped the uh, giant attorney fee, and, and said, well, you know, the, the case wasn't that strong, so it's okay that there's just this injunction that doesn't really do anything, and it's okay that the lawyers are getting paid because they worked really hard. Uh, and we said, well, but you settled the class action. You, you were supposed to be representing consumers, but you haven't done anything for your clients, and that's not right. And so we took that up on appeal to uh, the federal Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and uh, we got a good panel uh, led by Judge Diane Sykes. And, and she immediately recognized what we were arguing, that uh, we had these attorneys who were bringing this bogus lawsuit that couldn't possibly accomplish anything for consumers, but were hoping to get paid. And she correctly recognized this as a scam and, and, and 
uh, ordered the settlement thrown out and, uh, and, and suggested very strongly that the entire case should be thrown out and that the lawyers shouldn't be allowed to represent a class like this. And that's indeed what happened on remand. So the trial lawyers get all the money, the consumer doesn't get any of it, and the consumer has to pay for the trial costs. Right, and, and it's a double hit, actually, because if the lawyers know that they don't actually have to win anything for consumers to get paid, uh, they're going to bring more bad lawsuits. They're, they're, they're not going to... F- so consumers are... It's actually a triplet because you have these additional bad lawsuits that just cost consumers more money because they're raising costs to anybody. It's pure social cost. It's pure rent-seeking. Uh, you have consumers not getting anything. And then when consumers actually are injured... And there, there are legitimate class actions to be brought. The, the lawyers are still going to be focusing on the cases, on, on the crummy, uh, easy-to-settle quick cases, uh, rather than on the, on the legitimate cases. So get, getting a, a court to rule, as the Seventh Circuit did on this one, is, I think, great for consumers. Uh, it, it forces lawyers to focus on the cases where they can actually win things for consumers. And... It avoids these uh, costs of, of just meritless lawsuits. Ted Frank, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Senior attorney with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And now, I guess I'll have pizza for lunch. And great job on that, Jesse. And we bring you these stories, not because they're silly, but because in the end, they cost the American people a whole lot of money. And again, there are good lawsuits, and boy, there are some really bad ones. And the bad ones... Well, they can crowd out the good ones. And thanks to Ted Frank for the work he's doing at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, senior attorney there, and again, fighting for consumers in the end. These costs get passed along to us. This is Lee Habib, Subway's story, and that's one of our favorites here, here on Our American Stories. our American stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show about everyone from international celebrities to folks you've never heard of, because each of those stories gives us a little window into a life. If we can't walk a mile in someone else's shoes, we can at least hear a story about it. Joey Cortez did some great work for us as an intern, and then he went back to school at Boston College. While reading the BC student newspaper, The Gavel, Joey came across an inspiring story from a young woman named Kitty Sargent. She's in the B.C. class of 2016, and so many people talk about this upcoming college generation, and I think rather pejoratively, and it's a shame. And we don't think this way or act like this on our show. Kitty kindly recorded her story, and Joey produced it for us. Let's take a listen. This is Kitty Sargent on Being Pretty. I walked into my 7th grade math class the day after I got a haircut, feeling like a million bucks. 
My hair was straight and shiny. My smile stretched from ear to ear. I felt pretty. Beautiful, even. That's saying a lot for an awkward seventh grader. But suddenly, a voice cut through the happiness I was feeling. This was girl Gabrielle. Wow, Kitty. If only you got contacts, then you'd actually be pretty. Wait. So I wasn't pretty? But I could be? I had gotten glasses in fifth grade and wore them every day for the next ten years. I tried contacts, but never liked them, so I stuck with my four eyes. As I got older, I seemed to have it all together on the outside, but my self-confidence plummeted. Pretty girls weren't supposed to wear glasses. It didn't bother me as much in high school, but that changed once I got to BC. My insecurities about my glasses was compounded by a host of other body images and appearance-based concerns. Never before had I been around so many people who cared so much about what they looked like. Diets weren't a thing in my high school, but in college, carbs were suddenly evil. The elliptical became a close personal friend of mine at BC. And shouldn't that have made me pretty? Shouldn't it have made me happy? The other girls certainly seemed happy, and they were pretty too. My sophomore eight-man had dieting competitions to hold us accountable, with charts posted in the kitchen and planks doled out to those who messed up. The app I used the most on my phone was my calorie counter. I was doing it right, but I still didn't feel pretty. My body image issues were also largely driven by a need to overcompensate for shortcomings in other areas. At the end of my freshman year, I found a lump in my throat that was growing quickly. It was a thyroid nodule, and it continued to grow all throughout my first semester of sophomore year. The doctor wanted to wait and monitor how big it got before making any decisions on what to do with it. But this wait-and-see attitude drove me crazy. I was trying so hard to do everything right, and I still wasn't in control. It was like my body was laughing at me. You want to fit in? You want to feel pretty? You don't want that confidence to be fake? Well, here's the curveball. The watch-and-see method led to a decision to remove the nodule in March of my sophomore year. But I knew about the surgery in January, which led to two months of agonizing waiting. It was in this two-month window that I started a gratitude practice. I needed to find a silver lining to come to terms with the lump in my throat, so I hoped that practicing gratitude would help me to do so. Every morning I would wake up, sit down holding my mug of tea, and list off what I was grateful for. My parents, my friends, and BC. But as the weeks went by, my, cra- my practice grew more routine. I'm grateful to be a woman in a society that respects me as an equal contributor. I'm grateful to live in a democracy where my vote, my opinion, matters. I'm grateful that the sun rises in the east every morning. And one morning during my reflection, a new thought popped into my head. I was grateful for my body, because it lets me run and jump and sing and hug. It lets me explore the world and learn new things. In that moment, I wasn't grateful for how my body looked, but for what it did. That morning was the first morning in many years that I liked my body. The surgery came and went. I was back at school uh, a week later when my surgeon called. It wasn't just a lump. It was cancer. I was shocked. It wasn't supposed to be cancerous. I wasn't supposed to get cancer, especially as a sophomore in college. My body didn't love me. 
and I didn't love my body. But then there was that nagging gratitude practice where I discovered all these great things that I adored about what my body could do. As my treatment ran its course over the next few months, I found the chance to marvel at modern medicine. A hundred years ago, I probably would have died. But with the aid of medical treatment, my body found the strength to fight back. I was declared cancer-free on July 1st, 2014. I was free from doctors, needles, and medical words too long to pronounce. I was free to be me again, and not just a girl with cancer. Somehow, by getting sick, by being pushed so far into loathing my body and what it had, quote, done to me, I stopped hating my body. Obviously, I experienced setbacks. I still have days where I criticize how I look. I got LASIK surgery the same summer that I finished my cancer cancer treatment. And I won't pretend that my glasses disappearing didn't help my confidence. But generally, I found I couldn't hate something so incredible that had fought back and won against this terrible disease. Now, when I eat healthy foods, it's to nourish my body so it can perform its very best. Not because I'm counting calories. When I work out, it's not to lose weight. It's just nice to feel strong after feeling so weak in the past. The more I forced myself to love my body, the less forced it felt. The more I forced myself to act confident, the less it felt like an act. I went abroad to Paris and ate more bread and cheese and wine than I had in the previous two and a half years at BC. I realized that good food isn't evil, it's heavenly. The French would call it a raison d'être, a reason to be. Being away from BC for a whole semester also showed me that I needed to want things because I myself truly wanted them. If I didn't want to fit into the BC stereotypes of beauty, then I shouldn't let myself feel pressured to do so. Of course, that's far easier to say when you're six time zones away. Back on campus now, that pressure is still just as present as it was when I, before I went abroad. Sometimes, I wish my waist were smaller, my hair less frizzy, my laugh less obnoxious. The list goes on, and the critiques are still as numerous as before. But then I remember what I'm grateful for about my body. I've sung a mass at La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. I've climbed the Duomo in Florence. I've gone on sunset jogs along the Seine in Paris. I've beaten cancer. The positives start to outweigh the negatives, and those critical voices seem to get a little quieter each time. The words that one 13-year-old girl forgot five seconds later still occasionally ring in my ears. Am I pretty today? Am I ever actually pretty? I will always be working to shift my conception of self-worth away from just what I look like. But today, I know I can usually look in the mirror and be happy with what I see. With who I see. I see someone who's just a little more confident than she was yesterday. Just a little happier. And today, that's all I need. And great work on that, Joey. And thank you, Kitty, for revealing that part of yourself. And uh, and Faith, Faith is 21 on our staff, on our team. I've got an 11-year-old girl, and I've already heard her ask that question to herself in front of a mirror. What goes there? I don't. And I, by the way, I hear this is happening more and more with young men too. Um, but talk about uh, talk about this this body image thing with girls. I think so much of it is comparison. We look at other people, and it's 
you know, I'm too skinny, I'm too fat, in comparison to who? It's other people. One of my favorite quotes is Theodore Roosevelt. He says, comparison is the thief of joy. Because what are, when we're comparing to other people, we're depressed, we're ungrateful, we're even hateful towards others because we're looking at them thinking they have this while I want that or whatever it is, so we may act unkindly. But I love how honest Kitty is and what she says about how, okay, I haven't fully overcome this. Like some days it's still hard. Right, right. And some days it's still difficult. And some days I still look in the mirror and wish I was somebody else or I wish my, you know, my chest was bigger, my waist was smaller, I had a thigh gap or something like that. Right. (laughs) Um, Which most people don't even know what it is, um, guys at least. And so I think I love her honesty because even though she has come so far, she still has to refocus so often. And I wish that it hadn't been through those difficulties, but I'm so proud of her. And I hope like a lot of other people can learn from what she's Well, shared. if you've got daughters or if you're a woman, um, I know my wife, I don't know anyone who has a woman in their life knows that they're looking in the mirror different than for the most part men look in the mirror. Because I think we look in the mirror and think, wow, we look wonderful. Losing hair, the belly's getting bigger, and we just go, well, let's have a beer. That's about it. And here on Our American Stories, we talk about everything. But that gratitude practice, I think that's the most important thing in the world. And thanks for that quote as well, Faith, on comparison stripping you of your joy. Because it does in the end. It does. And here on Our American Stories, we love to tell stories about everything and from everyone here. Well, hopefully you have a different impression of young college folks. Because they ain't any different than we were They're just growing up in different times. We were all young once. We're older. But my goodness, the self-doubt, the beauty in this young lady's voice. We want to get to know her better. We're going to reach out to her. I think this is a voice we want to hear more from here on Our American Stories.